2009, October 21st. Today is Astronomy 141, Lecture 20, The History of Life on Earth. Not to hear all the mistakes. Um, we've been talking about, we're trying to sort of move towards the end of finishing up the, the overview of life on the Earth. And so we've finally reached the point where we've got enough information to step back take the long view and go back into that picture of geologic history now and ask what was the history of life on Earth? What is the basic timeline? What's the appearance of things? And what were the sort of stages that we can now begin to piece together? Understanding the nature of how organisms work at the biochemical level and also what we've been able to piece together from, from, from the geological record. So today is a quick overview of the history of life on Earth. So the lecture is going to basically focus on the following points. We're going to see that the phases of life arising on Earth went through some very distinct steps. The first of these is that during the eon called the Proterozoic, we saw a very rapid diversification of anaerobic prokaryotes, basically simple single-celled organisms without an, out a cell nucleus that worked in a non-oxygen environment. They basically were had no oxygen metabolism, <coughs> unlike what we see for most creatures today. During the Proterozoic, however, we will see that there was the emergence of photosynthesis. And photosynthesis came with it in its, in its initial phases, the conversion of carbon dioxide and water to oxygen, and the steady rise of oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere. We're going to talk about where a lot of that oxygen went. It actually wasn't into the air until various of the sinks of oxygen got saturated, filled up, and actually began to see the sudden rise of oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere. With the rise of oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere, a very, very important metabolic channel got opened up because oxygen metabolism is very high energy compared to other forms of metabolism. And this meant that you could begin to have enough energy to start supporting more complex and larger organisms. And so we see, going alongside the rise of oxygen in the atmosphere, we'll see the rise from prokaryotes to eukaryotic cells, cells with an actual nucleus containing DNA, and then finally the organization of eukaryotes into multicelled organisms, leading about 540-odd years, 40-odd million years ago to the Cambrian explosion in biodiversity that basically marks the, the end of the Proterozoic Eon and the start of the Phanerozoic. And it's then when we actually start seeing all of the basic body plans of animals and plants that we see on the Earth today. We're going to find that this Cambridge explosion, however, you've got to remember, is up to this point, we're just talking about marine species. Everything's living in the oceans and water. It isn't until later in the Phanerozoic that we start seeing the colonization of, of land, first by plants, and then some many millions of years later, animals beginning to follow the plants onto land. Once life got a toehold on the land, things really took off. We'll walk through the various major steps in that not going into a lot of areas, but finally end, we're going to just very quickly at the very last slide, as it turns out, talk about the emergence of primates, then hominids, then humans. And if I've crammed this all into the last slide, it even more so has been crammed into the last bits of Earth's geological history, as we're going to see. So the rise of life took a very long time, many billions of years. The rise of human life, as we understand it, scales not billions, thousands of years, or tens of thousands to 100,000 years, and the rise of intelligence even shorter period of time. It's an essential piece of the clues that we're going to need when we start looking for life elsewhere in the universe. One of those big questions we want to ask is, what about intelligent life in the universe? Is there someone else we can talk to out there, for example? Well, that turns out to be a very rare occurrence on Earth, and it might give us some hint as to how common it should be out in the rest of the universe. Now, before I begin, I need to do a brief digression. I I realized as I was putting together the, the lecture yesterday and the day before, you know, I should have done this earlier. 
because today we're going to need it more than that. There is a notation for how you keep saying the words years ago, meaning time that has elapsed previous to the present day, time before the present day. And the geologists of basic, geologists, archaeologists, and other people have come up with a notation in which they use YA to essentially mean years ago. So, for example, in words, I would say something like 3.5 billion years ago or 454 million years ago. How do you write that in a simple, compact way? Because that's, that's like four words there and some numbers. So the way we notate this is billion years ago is notated as GYA, which read out means giga years ago. Hence, three and a half billion years ago would be written 3.5 GYA. MYA is mega years or million years ago. Hence, this 454 million years would be rendered 454 MYA. And not surprisingly, 1,000 years ago, which we will get at the very end, is KYA. So it's a very nice shorthand notation. It keeps me from having to write out years ago. And I get really tired of typing a go last night. That's really where this came from. However, I'll give you a warning. If you go into any of the archaeological or paleontological literature, some places are starting to use GA and MA. Ah, I don't like that very much. It makes me forget there's a year in there. This means giga annum. And they want to talk about an annum as a year. Pre yeah, no, that's just not, that's not useful. I hope that notation goes away. All right. Let's get started after a little digression. Let me remind you of this picture. We've seen this a lot in the class, and we'll just show it again. In fact, I think this is probably one of the last times I get to show this picture. This is the four eons of geological time. This is all of the Earth's history laid out as a ruler from formation about 4.6 billion years ago all the way up to the present day over here on the right, and the division of geological time into the four major eons. In round numbers, an eon lasts about a billion years. And so not surprisingly, in the four and a half billion year history of the Earth, there are about four eons. But an eon is not a simple division of time. There is not a fixed number of billions of years in an eon. The eons we recognize in Earth geologically are, di are basically divided up by the major events in the Earth's history. Now, we've talked a lot about the Hadean era, eon. That was the period of the formation of the Earth and the formation of the oceans and the atmosphere of the Earth. And it begins four and a half billion years ago and terminates about 3.8, 3.85 billion years ago, with marked by the end of the epoch of heavy bombardment, the last time that there were major asteroidal impacts of a sterilizing nature on the planet. We then begin a period known as the Archean, which will basically extend from, in round numbers, about 3.8 billion years ago up to about 2.5 billion years ago. This is the period where we see the first emergence of recognizable forms of life on the planet. We talked about those the other day, the stromatolites and the fossil bacteria, also the plausible evidence in the carbon isotope ratios that we spoke about in the previous lecture. This all brings us up to the Archean. For the most part, the Hadean and Archean eons are pretty much distinguished by the geology of the time because life really hasn't gotten a toehold on the planet yet. But the evidence is beginning to accumulate that within a few hundred million years of the end of the Hadean, life began pretty quickly in the Archean. From the end of the Archean to the beginning of the final two eons in the current geological history, we notice a sudden change in the name. Proterozoic, beginning two and a half million years ago to four and a half roughly 450 million years ago, and Phanerozoic, which is basically everything from 454 million years ago to the present day. Notice the use of the word zoic. That comes from the Greek zoon, meaning an animal, meaning life. 
So we're going to begin to now see that about halfway through the Earth's history, the geologic record begins to be dominated by the presence of the life forms that we find in the geologic record. Not just land forms, oxygen or whatever, uh, chemical abundances and things like that, but the actual appearances of life. And this is the part that really concerns us. Where today we're going to be concentrating primarily on these last two eons, the last two and a half billion years of the Earth's history, which is really where life begins to dominate. And we're going to see, for example, the Proterozoic is the period where we see the rise from simple single-celled organisms up to eukarya, which have eukaryotes are cells with a nucleus, to building up complex, um, beginning the steady build-up towards multicellular life, but also is marked by a marked change in the Earth's atmospheric composition, the rise of oxygen. And finally, the Phanerozoic here, the recent life eon, it's beginning about 454 million years ago, is the rise of plant and animal life that you and I would all recognize as macroscopic life today. And that's what begins and denotes the Phanerozoic. So this is where we are. So let's go back a little bit and just sort of start at the beginning. So we've done the Hadean, just to remind you, the Archean Eon began with the end of heavy bombardment and was a situation where the Earth's atmosphere, initial atmosphere had already been built up. It's a heavy carbon dioxide and nitrogen atmosphere. A lot of water vapor is already precipitated out and formed the oceans. But conspicuously absent from the atmosphere of the Archean period is molecular oxygen, O2. It simply isn't present, or if it is present, it's only present in very small quantities, as we'll see. The primary form of life that appears in the geologic record are the stromatolites, which now have been pretty securely found and identified, or at least things that are like modern stromatolites, back to about three and a half billion years ago. This is basically going to be a form of life that has begun to get a toehold. It's going to probably do chemosynthesis, maybe some photosynthesis early on, and is going to begin to build up the sediments that survive as the, as the, as the fossils. But the primary form of life during the Archean period were microbes, and they were microbes that are referred to as anaerobic microbes. These are microbes that thrive in an anoxic atmosphere, an, an atmosphere without any molecular oxygen in it. The places where you're going to find these are primarily in the deep oceans and in the shallow shores. There's probably very little colonization of the land by these microbes at this point because there is no oxygen in the atmosphere. There is no ozone in the upper atmosphere. That means the ultraviolet radiation from the sun basically passes through the atmosphere unhindered and ultraviolet radiation is an extremely strong sterilizer and mutagen of microscopic life. Think about any of you who've worked in a, in a biology laboratory or know about work in biology laboratories. Strong ultraviolet lamps are used to sterilize glassware. So the Earth basically would have pretty much sterile land, but water absorbs ultraviolet radiation, so you don't have to go very far below the surface of the oceans before the sun's ultraviolet is basically blocked. Oceans are sunblock. It's probably likely that most of the energy utilization by life during the Archean period was chemosynthesis. You don't need sunlight for it. Chemosynthesis is capable of converting carbon dioxide dissolved into seawater and taps as its energy the oxidation of inorganic compounds, iron and sulfur compounds primarily, or hydrogen compounds if they're available. That's going to pretty much put you down at the, at the deep ocean levels down near volcanic vents. However, up on the shores, near the surface of the water, we would begin to see the rise of the first photosynthesis of life, the basic ability of life to begin to convert sunlight into energy and utilize that energy to begin the chemistry of converting carbon dioxide and water into, among other things, oxygen or other compounds. 
This period is marked by a very rapid diversification of life at the microscopic level. We're talking about cellular life here dominantly. Nothing multicellular exists, nothing with a cell nucleus exists so far as we know, and it's going to be driven primarily through the process of natural selection. Those things that can survive and thrive and replicate are going to move into the ecological niches. There's a question here in the middle. That was a good question. Does, does all water block ultraviolet radiation? The answer is yes. There's nothing special about seawater or freshwater. They all act as a very strong absorber of ultraviolet radiation. And what I can't remember off the top of my head is whether the depth that you have to go varies between with the composition. <laughs> but you don't have to go very far down. So, for example, if, you're, if you could spend all your time at the, at, the, at the beach underwater, you probably wouldn't get a sunburn. You get the, beach, you get the sunburn when you're on the outside. But not a thin skin. You can't just sort of splash water over yourself and think you're wearing off the sun. Not going to happen. You need you need sort of a few feet, I think, if you'll pardon my my English, um, for uh, for before you get any any penetration depth and, and before you get basically any shielding. That's a good question. The other questions about Archean life, and ultraviolet. The ultraviolet's going to come back. It's one of the themes we're going to get. By the end of the Archean era and the beginning of the Proterozoic, which occurs about 250 billion years ago. We see very clearly in the fossil record microfossils of single-celled organisms. These single-celled organisms have at least the basic structure of prokaryotes. We don't see any signs of cell nuclei yet. Maybe they're starting to appear, but we don't see them yet because cell nuclei are pretty soft, so they're going to be hard to preserve in the fossil record. We do see, however, in the chemical record of this period, the rise of photosynthesis, the utilization of sunlight to help power metabolism to convert carbon dioxide into organics. Now, the first, uh, first photosynthesis on the planet was not the photosynthesis we're all familiar with. It occurred in things like purple sulfur-eating bacteria, which are a current, uh, a current day equivalent of these, in which instead of using water and carbon dioxide to produce the met, uh, metabolism driven by sunlight, they used hydrogen sulfide. <coughs> Hydrogen sulfide has a sort of rotten egg smell. It's this hydrogen and sulfur compound. It's going to be common around volcanic vents, especially deep sea volcanic vents, even to this day. And so they can basically undergo a similar kind of cycle to like the Calvin cycle used in modern day plants, which will convert hydrogen sulfide and carbon dioxide into sulfates and sulfur, di- sulfur oxides and, of course, carbon sugars and things like that. So this was probably the first form of photosynthesis. It provides energy for meta- it allows you to tap energy for metabolism and provides food, but it's not going to produce any oxygen as a byproduct. The difference comes when, especially in those places near the surface of the oceans or in shallow regions which had access to sunlight, visible sunlight for the most part, that about 2.4 billion years ago, so not too long after the start of the Phanerozoic, we, began to, we begin to see in the fossil and chemical record the rise of oxygen-producing photosynthesis, the conversion of carbon dioxide and water through the action of catalytic action with sunlight to produce oxygen gas, O2. This turns out to be fairly important. This is the beginning of oxygen, but it turns out oxygen's got a problem. Oxygen is highly reactive. In fact, it's one of the most reactive chemical components in the entire biosphere. If you make any oxygen, it will quickly, not surprisingly, oxidize almost everything in sight. It's a very high energy process. This is why oxidation is so cool. Oxidation of minerals, for example, is is the source of chemosynthesis. So if you dump any oxygen out into the early atmosphere, you've got all these minerals around, especially 
unoxygenated sulfur and iron, and iron just soaks this stuff up like a sponge. So what happens is, whatever oxygen these, these little blue-green bacteria are starting to pump out is getting soaked up by the mineral sinks all over the surface of the earth. It basically goes into making rust for first and foremost and sulfur, and sulfur oxides. So these things are pumping it out, but it's getting soaked up as quickly as they pump it out, and very, very little makes it into the Earth's atmosphere. We see a little bit of it going into the atmosphere because we see some signs of the oxygen chemistry going on in the ocean water and preserved, but most of it's going to go into making mineral oxidation. And this leaves behind its traces in the geological record. Turns out most of the initial oxygen, this is a statement of fact, most of the initial oxygen made by photosynthesis early in the history of the Earth is soaked up by mineral oxidation. We see this in the geological record by what are called banded iron formations, or BIFs for short. A banded iron formation is basically a sedimentary rock in which you see layers of iron oxide rich material layered in with regular marine sediments. And it stands out because it's bright red. Minerals like hematite, for example, or magnetite are the dominant iron oxide minerals that are formed with this. Here's an example of one of these banded iron formations. It's a rock, I believe it's from Michigan, from 2.1 billion years ago. It's actually at a museum in Dresden. It's one of the classic pictures here. The if you do a calculation of how much banded oxygen is found on the Earth and how much uh, banded iron formations are found on Earth, and you say, how much oxygen should be trapped in that iron formation, you get an amazing number. Inside the banded iron formations, which formed during the early Proterozoic, 20 times the current oxygen content of our atmosphere is locked up in that iron oxide. That gives you an idea of just how really powerful mineral oxidation is for scrubbing out whatever oxygen is there. In fact, these things are actually very important to us. We find a lot of these up on the northern Great Lakes, Lake Superior. If you're in the commercial iron mining business, this is what you're looking for geologically to, to get, make high-grade iron ore. If you're looking for banded iron formation. So we actually know a lot about these things because they're worth money. So the big deal here is that between the rise of photosynthesis, sort of maybe between 2.4, 2.5, maybe some evidence even pushing it into 2.7 billion years ago, just into the end of Archean, all the way up to almost 1.8 billion years later, so almost a 1 billion year period, those portals, cyanobacteria are soaking up the sun, they're pumping out oxygen, and the iron in the earth is basically soaking it up as fast as they can make it. But by 1.8 billion years old, by, by a billion years ago, something changes. And what changes is, at some point, you run out of iron and sulfur to oxidize in large quantities. This isn't to say it goes on, but you start saturating the sinks of oxygen. You start filling the buckets, if you will. And that's when things suddenly change. So the big change in the Earth really begins, the big event is 1.8 billion years ago. When all of those oxygen sinks, the iron and unoxygenated sulfurs, finally get up as much oxygen as they can possibly take, we say that the sinks of oxygen have been saturated. Then where's the oxygen going to go? Straight into the atmosphere. And what we see in the geological record is, beginning about 1.8 billion years ago, there's a very rapid rise in the oxygen content of the atmosphere as those bacteria are sitting there just cranking out the oxygen, and now it's actually going into the air. This turns out to be really, really bad for anaerobic life because oxygen is a very reactive substance. It attacks chemical bonds. It is a poison to an anaerobic bacterium. And so what happened is, once the oxygen rose above a certain level, 
and began to bubble its way into the oceans and get its way into the biosphere, the anaerobic prokaryotes started dying off en masse. They started having the first real mass extinction event in the Earth's history. The only ones that are going to survive are the ones that are in the very deep oceans or very far underground where the oxygen can't reach them, which is interestingly the only place we really find anaerobic bacteria in the present day. We find them deep underground, we find them near volcanic vents in the deep oceans, and we also find them mixed into pockets of soil. Anaerobic bacteria turn out to be the nitrogen-fixing bacteria inside of certain plants. So this is really bad news for all those anaerobic prokaryotes that have been growing up through the last billion years of the, or so of the Archean. But it's good news for photosynthetic prokaryotes, which can make oxygen. They're immune to the oxygen, or they're basically they're immune to the oxygen metabolism. And it's even better news for this new emerging class of cells called eukaryotes. So the rise of oxygen is both a crisis and an opportunity. It is a crisis for anaerobic bacteria, but the explosion of oxygen in the Earth's atmosphere turns out to be a great news for much more complicated life. And one of the big reasons is oxygen provides for very high energy metabolism. More energy means you can start building things that are more complex and you can sustain larger creatures. So in this period where the oxygen levels are beginning to slowly rise, we see the appearance of the first eukaryotes in the fossil record about 2.1 billion years ago during the early Proterozoic. And what we see are intermediate types between prokaryotes, which have their DNA kind of just in a bag, to a eukaryote, which has its DNA in a kind of a nucleus. Uh, we think what the, f the structure is, is these outer lipid membranes are starting to become more complicated. As complicated proteins begin to come into play, they start working on the cell membranes to make them more than just a lipid bag. You actually get infoldings and encroachments as you begin to get larger prokaryotes. You get these sort of involuted, convoluted structures. And eventually you get to a point where it turns out if you wrap the DNA package in a sort of a little involuted bit of membrane, you end up protecting and concentrating the genetic material. You lead to a much greater efficiency in running the DNA's chemistry within the cell. You've now given the cell an efficiency advantage in its competition for resources and life. Whenever you give a life form an advantage in a tough environment, evolution basically takes over and favors the propagation of that advantageous thing. Again, if you want to think of it in terms of competition terms, Two farmers living side by side both have to plow their 40 acres of land to grow corn. One farmer has a horse-drawn plow, the other has a fully rigged John Deere. Which one's probably going to be more successful? On average, you would bet on the person who could accomplish the task faster and more efficient without, with use of energy. Okay, that's probably a bad example because if in fact the horse-drawn farmer is a really good farmer and the guy with the John Deere is an idiot, okay, we gotta, let's not push the analogy too far. <laughs> These larger creatures are going to be accompanied. The appearance in the fossil record is accompanied by increasing oxygen. So this is, again, this access to not only greater efficiency allowed by the more complicated cell body plans, if you will, but also by the fact that oxygen allows a higher energy metabolism, more available energy to provide for the cells, powering the cell's biochemistry. Now, it turns out if we look at the first eukaryotes, they were probably symbionts. They were probably actually tiny colonies or tiny colonial-like organisms in which two different kinds of prokaryotes got together and began, at least biochemically speaking, to cooperate. 
I always have to be careful in talking about this stuff because we're, we're humans. We want to use the English language and I can't make up too many words, so I'm going to steal analogies and I'm going to be giving these things sounding like I'm giving them intent and purpose. I'm not. This is just what they do. Okay. So what you might get, for example, is a, a, small, a small little prokaryote which has a fairly specialized function might find that it actually has an advantage if it gets together with a bigger prokaryote, one of these proto-eukaryotes here, for example, and actually takes on some function. It provides some energy or provides some food to the larger cell. The larger, larger prokaryote provides protection for the little cell, for example, provides it a stable environment in which to do its thing. They both keep their packages of DNA. They both have their separate heredity. They go their separate ways when they divide. But this kind of cooperative working together gives them both an advantage which is greater than they would have if they were separate. It's called symbiosis, living together. We see the signs of this symbiosis in our own cells, in our own bodies, and in the cells of plants. Inside your cells are little organelles called mitochondria. They turn out to be the little ATP energy factories of cells. Did you know your mitochondria have their own DNA separate from your nuclear DNA? That's because, in fact, they probably evolved down from prokaryotic bacteria that joined with a proto-eukaryote sometime in the past. They provided a tremendous advantage by basically being little energy metabolism factories. And once you give someone an energy efficiency advantage in a competitive environment, evolution takes over. Chloroplasts are those little green bodies, look like little prokaryotes, that can basically do photosynthesis through with chlorophyll. Imagine, however, that you embed these little sunlight conversion systems, if you will, little cellular photocells, if you will, embed them in a bigger cell. Now, your big cell, which says, you know, I've got a big body here, I have troubles getting energy, oh good, I'll coat myself or I'll fill myself with little convenient photosynthetic cells that cell suddenly has an energetic advantage in a competitive environment. Those became plant cells. In fact, if you look at the chloroplasts inside plant cells, they are, the, they are almost identical to single-celled photosynthetic prokaryotes. Obviously, there have been some modifications over history as things begin to evolve. I mean, come on, we've got a few billion years to work with here. So we see the symbiosis in the structure of eukaryotes. Eukaryotes were probably the first cooperation in nature. Once eukarya begin to emerge, having complex cell machinery in which now you begin to compartmentalize cell functions, specific cell functions, allows for an efficiency advantage that allows for a hereditary and evolutionary advantage, and these things begin to take off. They're still not the dominant form of life even today, but they have a lot of advantages in certain environments where they can manage to get by where prokaryotes cannot. Now, as soon as you form single-celled eukaryotes, we see them all over the fossil record. But what's interesting is, it takes a while, about one to, until 1.2 billion years ago, so a period of more than a billion years elapses, between the rise of the first eukaryotes and the first time that we start seeing multicellular eukarya, eukaryotic life. The very first beautiful example of these in the fossil record appeared 2.1 oh, billion years ago, with these particular fossils called Bangiomorpha pubescens. They're basically exactly recognizable to a modern-day red algae. They're very similar in their function and form. They probably started out as small colonies 
of single-celled eukarya. And as these things basically found that working together to survive in the environment was better than trying it themselves, eventually certain changes evolved in them. So certain of the cells in the colony took on the func some functions and other cells specialized in other functions. Once you get this specialized cell function going on in a multicellular creature, you're already one step towards plants and animals. The specialization allows you to spread your resources out. Now, not every cell has to do every single biochemical job. Some cells take care of metabolism. Some take care of waste handling. Some start taking care of reproduction for the system. And before you know it, you start seeing something that looks like a real organism, not just a single-celled creature. In particular, once you develop these multicellular organisms, what's also interesting about Bangiomorpha is not only is it an obvious multicellular creature, there are examples of it in basically sexually reproducing. So it seems that when you get eukarya very quickly, sexual reproduction begins to emerge and a completely new channel for mixing, matching, and combining genetic information to lead to genetic diversity suddenly appears inside the, the possibilities of life on the Earth. Once you start having sexual reproduction, where you begin to share genetic material from two parents to make the new organism, you can now have a tremendous advantage in genetic diversity. When you're just a single-celled organism splitting into two copies, you're nearly two exact copies. Except for slight genetic variation, slight mutations, they're really close to each other. So there's not a lot of diversity that's possible by just making, if you will, biochemical Xerox copies of yourself. But now when the copy contains parts of two completely different creatures, the level of diversity possible literally explodes. And genetic diversity is one of the things that really enables evolution because if the genetic variation is small, evolution doesn't have anything to work on. There's very slow diversity, very slow change in body plans. It takes forever for anything to happen. Look what we've seen so far in the fossil record. You see a tremendous amount of diversity in form but it accumulates over nearly 2 billion years to accumulate. And it's still 2 billion years of cranking away to make life from 3.5 billion up to almost a billion years ago. And what do you got? A whole bunch of bacteria and archaea and a handful of eukaryotes. It's still single cells. It took 2 billion years to get multicellular life. But once you get into sexual reproduction, bam, the whole thing begins to accelerate. What's really happening here is as you begin to develop these things, you get into it, the, literally the case, the whole becomes greater than the sum of the individual components. This gives a tremendous selective advantage and adaptational advantage in hostile environments. Because you can begin to break up cell function, you can begin to now, you're using higher energy metabolism, and by breaking up the function, you're using the energy more and more efficiently. Anything that gives you an energy efficiency edge gives you an evolutionary advantage. The diversity, still, diversity begins to explode, but body plans stayed pretty boring. They didn't really change a whole lot between the first multicellular creatures that we see and about 550 million years ago. So the first three billion years of evolution of life on Earth is kind of boring. A lot of diversity, but not a lot of diversity of genetics, but not a lot of diversity of body plans, and not a lot of diversity in the sort of solution of how you organize these things. But the big change started coming about 580 million years ago. We're going to stop seeing GYA from here on out. What we see is a very rapid appearance just after the end of the last major glaciation, global glaciation episode called Snowball Earth, is the appearance in the fossil record of unmistakable 
multicellular functioning organisms, really big ones. Things that are now, well, look at the scale there. This thing's almost um, a few inches across, to use English units. This is an adiacara. The adiacara biota are vastly diverse. Some of them can be quite large. They're found all over this period in here. They are really the first complex multicellular organisms. They're still fairly enigmatic, because they're apparently still fairly soft-bodied, so this fossil record only gives you parts of it, but you can see that these are just way, way different than anything that occurred before. Before this, we're still down at the microscopic level. These you can pick up and look at with your hand. That was a huge change. Big things are being supported by both the environment and the changes in the cell biochemistry. These things were abundant until the start of the Cambrian period. The start of the Cambrian period marks the transition between the, the Proterozoic and the Phanerozoic. So this is the prelude, this is the preview to the big changes that are coming in life on Earth towards the end of the Proterozoic. So we've gotten to the late Proterozoic. We're now 580 million years ago. It's taken evolution three billion years to get from stromatolites to things that we can say, yeah, you know, that's almost an animal or a plant. Three billion years. So now we're going to go from this to us in 580 million years in round numbers. So you can see that in the development of complex body plans and greater complexity acts as basically to stomp the accelerator on the pedal of evolution. So let's go now and take a look at that picture, but now take the bottom half of that picture from your book. We're now going to concentrate on this little fraction up here of the Earth's history. Four and a half billion years of Earth's history, four billion years brought up right to the boundary between the Proterozoic and the Phanerozoic, and now we fan out into all of the various periods and eras of the Phanerozoic Eon. The Phanerozoic Eon marks the rise of plant and animal life on the Earth. It's still not dominant in terms of, terms of total mass of biology. Total mass of biology, bacteria just plain win. There's more mass in bacteria than there is in every other kind of life on the planet. But what matters is this is the big stuff, and it's the big stuff that's eventually going to get out onto the land. We're still in the oceans. The appearance of Complex animal life is extremely rapid in geological terms. Okay, now this isn't like yesterday there was nothing, today, holy crap, where did all the bugs come from? It didn't happen that fast. The Cambrian explosion is really what marks the start of the Phanerozoic. There's a tremendous change in the fossil record in the types of animals and creatures you see in there. Within the course of approximately 40 million years, Okay, we've been talking billions of years, so we're getting jaded. 40 million years is still a really, really long time. We see the sudden appearance of every single body plan that we now see on the planet, with only a couple of minor exceptions, both for plants and for animal lives. We see their beginnings in the fossil record. It's called the Cambrian Explosion. Now again, you shouldn't think of it as sudden rapid, but in geologic terms, it was a very rapid diversification of body plans. These are shown over here on the right. Okay, we have sponges. They're things that are recognizable, similar to sponges. We have a chordate, a thing with a backbone, or at least a very primitive backbone. We have a trilobite, and we even have a worm with feet. For the first time the, after the adiacara, things are starting to resemble things we might expect to walk outside and see something like it in terms of form, if not in detail. Most of the fauna that are inside of the... Cambrian explosion, none of them survived to the present day. Only their descendants do, and of course they inherited those body plans through the last 500 million years of evolution. 
But what's interesting is that once you get into this zone, we have lots of different body plans. They can very quickly begin to adapt to the many different ecological niches that began to open up. So something's going on here. Something changed on the Earth that suddenly led to not only a rapid diversity of body forms, a rapid diversity of biota, but also very quickly began to fill up all of the geological niches. And it was so complete of a change that basically nowhere else in the geological record do we see such a massive change in the nature of life on the planet. Nowhere else in the geological record does it get anywhere as diverse as this. This was the big event. And there's a couple reasons for that that we'll kind of go into here in just a second. So what happened? Why was the explosion? Well, there are a number of different reasons why this was the time right for life to suddenly get a toehold and take off. First and foremost with a bullet is abundant atmospheric oxygen. The atmospheric oxygen abundance has been growing over the years as the sinks had been already filled for minerals and oxygen, oxygen abundance in the atmosphere began to rise from photosynthesis. As you get abundant oxygen, more and more creatures with larger and larger body plans are actually viable. They can actually get enough energy from oxygen-based metabolism to do their cellular thing. If you don't have enough oxygen, only small creatures can survive because a big creature has big energy needs. And if they can't survive, provide the energy, you die. Period. It's a very, very strong pressure. The other thing was, the very end of the Proterozoic is one of those last big snowball Earth periods. Snowball Earth was really devastating for any of the life on the surface. It basically was a mass extinction event that period. When you have mass extinctions, and we'll talk more about this tomorrow, you open up vast periods, vast places in the ecological system which were previously occupied. It's hard for things to evolve into ecological regions if they've got to be engaged in intense competition for the food and resources there. But if a mass extinction event comes along and wipes the slate clean, they're basically running out into fresh ponds. And they have no competition and they radiate very, very rapidly. So you open up the ecological niches and the intense competition for what little resources are left provides intense selection pressure. You really do push natural selection really hard when you crank up, in this case, crank down the cold rather than cranking up the heat on the life. They've got to work hard to survive, so only the tough are going to make it through. You have a lot of different opportunities for the variation of giving you different advantages. And then when you suddenly let the pressure off, boom, they radiate into every available ecological niche as the ice begins to pull back. The final, as the final factor was, again, the rise many, many years before that, of sexual reproduction. It leads to tremendous genetic complexity, which is one of the necessary pieces to allow evolution to accelerate. So you have all the pieces set in place, and once you basically take all the brakes off, the planet literally fills with life in 40 million years. Now, once you've got life, we're still talking about marine life. So we're still not talking about land colonization. Land is very challenging to get to. We've already mentioned one of the problems is UV radiation from the sun. We're starting to build up an oxygen atmosphere. Oxygen photochemistry in the high atmosphere leads to the formation of the O3 molecule or ozone. Ozone has a wonderful property along with molecular oxygen, which is often forgotten in this process. They have very strong absorption in the ultraviolet. So as you begin to build up ozone in the upper stratosphere, you basically begin to build a UV shield around the Earth. 
And that UV shield begins to lessen the amount of sunlight, ultraviolet light that reaches the surface, and ultraviolet light is a powerful sterilizer and mutagen on the Earth. So once you begin to build up a sufficient ozone layer on the Earth, you make the land more habitable because you've removed the ultraviolet hazard, which was a fatal hazard for life. But there's still problems. Okay, we got rid of the UV radiation, but we still got this problem of when I'm swimming in the water, I got my nutrients floating around me, my food just kind of blows by, I'm surrounded by water, I got everything I need to live. Why the heck am I going to go up on land? I'd have to get the minerals from the rocks by breaking things up. I got to send roots down for water. This stuff's going to be hard, man. I'm going to stay here in the ocean. It took a long time until basic body plans began to develop that could stand up to the harsh environment out of the water and develop the necessary pieces they needed to be able to extract minerals. 27%, 30% of the Earth's surface is land. It's an ecological niche that nothing lived on but microbes. So if you could actually find a way as a creature, if you evolved to adapt to getting water from the ground with deep roots or digging, dissolving minerals to soak up the inorganics you need for photosynthesis in your metabolism, you've got a huge advantage because you've got a place where you don't have to compete with anybody but yourself. And so there's a tremendous pressure to radiate into that environment, but the challenges made it slow. So this immense explosion over 40 million years to break out into the marine environment happened about 554 million years ago. It took nearly another 100 million years in round numbers before plants and animals made it onto the land. It was that much of a challenge. Plants and fungi went first. Here's a kind of a painting of what a period at the sort of late, this is Ordovician, I think is what the name of this period is, where you might get plants sort of just growing up into the air around the edges of ponds. They still got the water available, they got the dissolved minerals, but they start slowly working their way away from the water. Animals eat plants, eventually they start following the food, and the ones who can follow the food and survive on land do a good job. As the plants go bigger, bigger, maybe they make shade, and you've got a version of a creature that can live in the shade, stay out of the sunlight, and eat the plants. You don't have any competition. The plants ain't got any predators. Woohoo! Food, and off you go. So it's a slow process, but you can see where the pressures would push you in these various directions. Once life got a toehold on land, and they radiated into these unoccupied niches, evolution just took over, and the whole thing began to explode very quickly. By 360 million years ago, during this nice warm, moist period we call the Carboniferous, basically the land got completely covered by vast tracts of forests with large trees, plants, ferns, even insects. Flying versions of life actually began to work their way into the system. Lots of creatures running around, little tiny things, maybe things are starting to look like creatures we see today. This painting always shows something that looks kind of like a dragonfly. There actually were fossil insects, some of them with really scary wingspans that actually look like more or less like the same body plan as a modern dragonfly. The Carboniferous period is very important for us. Carboniferous means carbon bearing. If you dig down into the ground, the carbon deposits from all this rotting vegetation and life is basically the main source of geological coal. So if you go dig into the coal seams over in uh, the eastern part of the state or in West Virginia, you're digging down into sedimentary strata that were laid down during the Carboniferous period some 360 million years ago. A somewhat later period that followed the Carboniferous called the Permian, large land creatures were also trapped in the ground carrying their loads of carbons. 
Not surprisingly, one of the biggest um, oil deposits in the United States and western Texas is called the Permian Basin, hence the name of the geological period. Um, well, one of the names for the, I'm sorry, the name for the place, not the name for the geological period. My backwards. It's named for the fact that you're basically digging into Permian oil deposits laid down in the ground, modified by the pressure, geological pressures, into coal and later oil. Our economy relies on what life was doing 360 to 200 million years ago. Okay, now we're going to fast forward a little bit. 250 million years, the last quarter billion years of the Earth's history, has seen a tremendous change in the type of animals that have colonized the land. Starting at around 250, so everything we've been talking about before is way off the left side of this, of this timeline here. The Carboniferous just peeking out there out to about 280 million years ago up to the Permians. This is the beginning of the period where we laid down the coal and oil deposits on the Earth. Massive amounts of carbon-bearing life. Big, big plants processing carbon dioxide, locking up that carbon into plant tissues and turning into, well, rotted logs, which becomes coal. Starting in around 220 million years ago, during the period known as the Triassic period, we're still in the, in the Phanerozoic, we begin to see the emergence of two major groupings of large land animals, the mammals and the dinosaurs, large saurians. These begin to appear, appear about 220 million years but for whatever reason, and again, perhaps just chance, perhaps just the way that the, the, the life forms evolved, is dinosaurs basically had a competitive advantage, and they radiated into most of the major land and oceanic and even aerial, at this point, niches on the Earth. Starting about 220 million years ago, and for a nearly 155 million year period, up to about 65 million years ago, dinosaurs ruled the Earth. We all have the sort of picture in our head of brontosauruses and T-Rexes and things like that going on in here. That was that period in here. Mammals existed, but they were under such severe competition for um, resources from the dinosaur, they kind of were small and furry and reclusive and lived in the, in the cracks and crevices. And then something happened. And what happened, we're going to talk in more detail about tomorrow. But right here, about 65 million years ago, a very large asteroid smacked the Earth near what is now the Caribbean Basin near the Yucatan. The debris from that impact basically caused enough of an ecological overturn in the Earth that nearly every single sauropod species was rendered extinct. A handful of small ones survived. You can see them. They're basically the pigeons and the birds and everything else you see are descendants of the last of the saurian species. But the mammals came up out of the cracks, if you will. They got pretty much hammered too, but they were evolved to live in these cracks with low amounts of resources, and all of a sudden, the slate got wiped clean, and an immense, an immense ecosystem was suddenly available for them to radiate into, and radiate they did. All the major mammals, including very large land animals, basically exploded into the geological record beginning about 65 million years ago and continue their prominence on the Earth among land, large mammals to the present day. Which brings us, of course, to everybody's favorite mammal, us. The first primates visible in the, ancestral, in the uh, fossil record show up a little, over six, little under 60 million years ago and began to split off into various lineages. The lemurs and the prosimians split off very early, about 58 million years ago. Another split off occurred about 40 million years ago into the monkeys. We really should be careful. Monkeys are a very different from apes. A chimp is not a monkey, no matter how many times you say that at the zoo. Kids say that at the zoo. Those split off, both New World and Old World, about 40 million years ago. 
and then the various lineages split off to the appearance of human beings a few hundred thousand years ago. And that brings us to the history of the present day.